Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 34, Act 2, Daniel Levy, Reflection, Connection, and Resonance, recorded January 10th, 2020, in New York City. One size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out. And the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember who walls were built to fall for old people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA community. Thanks for listening. And thanks for being a part of our global community. Help us spread the word about the podcast and tell a friend or a colleague to subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast player. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And now we have a pod shop. So go to teachingartistry.org slash pod shop and buy yourself a tea, a mug, a hoodie, or a tote bag. The podcast is proud, uh, proud to partner with Creative Generation for a video series called We Can't Go Back. The interview series focuses on the journeys of artists, educators, and community activists and their anti-racist and liberatory practices through the arts. Together, we examine, interrogate, and confront racist policies and systems rooted in white supremacy constructs. These necessary dialogues are supporting my own practices, and episodes have been released weekly since August, and we'll start sharing them on this platform um, starting next month. So uh, in the meantime, you can watch the eight dynamic conversations with artists and arts leaders now on the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body YouTube channel. And of course, there's more to come. On September 18th, 2020, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. This remarkable woman uh, was a warrior goddess, um, born in Brooklyn, uh, went to Cornell, met her husband there, um, had a baby, and then went to Harvard Law um, and ultimately um, graduated from Columbia Law and has taught in many universities and then was appointed by Jimmy Carter to the U.S. Appellate Court. And then by um, 1993 was appointed to the Supreme Court. Uh, where she resided literally all the way up to almost the day that she passed away. Um, She took on a lot of cases as a lawyer around gender equality, um, and she helped to found um, the Women's Rights Project as part of, sorry, the Women's Rights Project as part of the American Civil Liberties Union during the 70s. But what I found surprising was that she not only fought for gender, uh, against gender discrimination, but a lot of her cases actually involved men, um, which I don't know if everybody knows. Um... Yeah, and then she became like, you know, sort of famous (laughs) Um, more recently deemed notorious RBG um, for her dissent around the Voting Rights Act, which we are seeing great evidence of and have been for the last few years of how that um, Supreme Court decision has really helped um, increase voter suppression and discrimination and we're seeing the, 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 the impact of that right now. Um, RBG, I gotta say, uh, learn a lot from this woman. I gotta, I gotta say, um, 
big ups, but something that I, I just want to hope this works, but I was watching something about her and I thought, oh, this will be cool to hear her in her own words um, about, well, she said it in 2016, but uh, I think it's applicable to the moment. So I'm just going to play it. There's a great man uh, once said that the true symbol of the United States is not the bald eagle. It is the pendulum. And when the pendulum swings too far in one direction, it will go back. Yeah. We need it to go back. Uh, we need it to swing back. So this is my little tribute to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Thank you for fighting. Thank you for laying out a blueprint to help more of us fight for um, all that we believe in and for equality. Um, well, for equity and just a better, more liberated world. All right. So in this act, Daniel Levy um, talks to me again and we discuss his book, uh, A Teaching Artist Companion, How to Define and Develop Your Practice. He shares more about the process of writing the book and his hopes for the book. Um, and he also shares a little bit more about his family, arts engagement, and Buddhism. Here is episode 34, Act 2, Daniel Levy, Reflection, Connection, and Resonance. So I, uh, you said that you worked there for 13 years. Yeah. And so I from know like from 93 previous... to 2006. Okay, thank you. So when did you start writing? Because you said that you've been working on the book. So then as soon as I... Which we haven't really talked about yeah. the year, but we yeah. have in a previous conversation. So you said that you've been working on that for 13 years. So yeah. when did you start? So I started in, in 2006 when I left uh -huh. Lincoln Center. I said, I just felt like we were having a parting of the ways because philosophically, um, I wasn't... I wanted to be of service to other teaching artists. Mm. I knew at the time that was a goal because I felt, okay, I've been doing this for 13 years. I feel like I've learned a few things that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And why can't we share these things with each other? Find a format to share these things in a way that's going to help people do better work earlier in their careers. Mm. It's not that I know something that other people can't figure out, but if they can figure it out in a year instead of 13 years, right. why don't we try to do it in a year? Um, and I don't know what form I want this to take. I'm thinking maybe a book. Uh, I was talking with a friend, Amy Power. She's a lyricist. Uh, she lives in Los Angeles now. And I was telling her about this. At that time, I was writing film music. I had this sort of uh, sojourn into being both a, a Hollywood score preparer and, a, uh, and writing music for uh, four short films within a year. Wow. Um, I love that work. But you got him. I really would have had to move to LA, and yeah. I really couldn't write for theater anymore. Oh. I would have had to give up theater. Well, why? Oh no, you can't. You, you can't do all that. Too much. Too much. If you're gonna do film music, that's all you do. That oh. is it. You gotta immerse yourself in the community. There's too much competition. Oh, I was in LA yeah. for this conference with film music thingy, and uh, I was telling my friend about these ideas. I said, I don't know what to do. I'm like between jobs. Nobody's hiring me. I want to do this. And then she says, you should write a book. I'm like, uh, okay. And um, so I started. Mm -hmm. And the book, was, the book was a mess. It was a mess. It was like a bunch of stories. And I'm like, oh, is it a book for musicians? No, I don't want to do that. I want it to be for everybody. Well, how can it be for everybody when all the stories I have are music stories? And... No, I don't have any theme. There's nothing that really pulls it together. It's like a bunch of, well, this happened, and then this happens, and what if this happens? And I'm like, the book is kind of a mess. But I, I, I write it up. It end through, uh, through an inside track, through a fortunate inside track. Uh, it ends up at Oxford University Press. And Suzanne Ryan, the uh, chief editor there, looks at the book, calls me in for lunch, and says, okay, you have some good ideas. She said, but we will. We would never publish this book the way you've written it. Uh, your style is way too casual. It's kind of chatty. Uh, and it was. I mean, I, I was yeah. trying to like befriend the reader by being all, I don't know, loosey-goosey with it. And my writing sucked. My writing sucked. There is so little of that book left, <laughs> that draft of the book oh, left yeah. in this book. Because mm -hmm. then I, that was about three or four years into the writing. Mm -hmm. 
And she said, if you can change the tone, we might look at it again. I changed the tone. And then I got, and they accepted the book and I got peer reviewed and the peer reviewers were wicked smart. They pointed out these weaknesses and I was like, oh, thank you. Yes, I will change that. And I got some help uh, editing Ava Lehrer at 92nd Street Y. She's, she runs the Center for Arts, Learning, and Leadership there. She kind of taught me how to edit text uh, by helping me edit my text. And I got better at it. Mm. And I sort of transformed into a writer by learning how to rewrite. And that, that book just got rewritten over and over again for 13 years. Until now, it's, it's a thing. It's a thing. How do you feel about the thing? I'm proud of the thing. Yeah. I... I have a strong determination. I have a determination to make that thing useful. Mm. And if I got wind of it not being useful in some way or long-winded or digressive or not immediately applicable for teaching artists who are trying to self-improve their practice, I cut that out. Mm. A lot got cut on the floor and stuff that wandered or didn't move, I did my damnedest to make it move. Mm. Um, we as teaching artists, all of us teach ourselves how to do this. Nobody, nobody can be told how to do it. Nobody wants to be told how to do it. Nobody needs to be told how to do it. But it's helpful to have some reflective lenses that allow us to look at what we do so that we can see it before, you know, before you can change something for the better, you have to see what it is. Mm. And there are some, the book provides invitations to look at your work, consider how it's functioning, and then go back and redesign what you do in classrooms and workshops according to your own beliefs and values. Mm. Not according to somebody else's, mm -hmm. according to yours, you, have a point of view and a belief system you design work that you want to do and then before you encounter your students and then in the room you have to respond to how your work lives with that group in that moment mm -hmm. those are the three phases of our work which is view design and respond everybody has a view everybody has a belief system we design stuff before we go in and then there we are you know in the moment mm -hmm. on the ground with our students and stuff starts to happen and we have to, there are, there are separate, I believe there are separate tools for each of those phases. Mm. There are tools where you can examine what is your view? What do I believe? What do I care about? There are aspects of how we design programs and activities that can be bulleted out that are the same no matter what your art form is and no matter where you are teaching. You, like I was mentioning before, you have to know how to work with multiple modalities. You have mm -hmm. to know what, when to use analogies. There are different structures and techniques that all teaching artists use, and that's your design phase. Similarly, your de your, the respond phase, when you're with your students, there's certain things that happen. You, when you pose open questions, there, there's not an unlimited number of kinds of responses that you're going to get. Mm -hmm. There's kind of a set of types of responses, and it behooves you to know how to follow up the responses that you get to your questions, whether they be open or closed, you know, which are strategic. There's reasons you use open right. and closed questions. So what the book tries to do is uh, within the framework of view, design, and respond, I'm within those categories, uh, I'm laying out what I believe are the, I'm, I'm pointing out and inviting the reader to consider these aspects of each of those phases of our work. Mm -hmm. Um and at the same time, I'm telling a lot of stories about uh, failures that I had with those particular aspects of the work. Because uh, I think failure stories are a lot more instructive than success stories. Right. Also, I invited uh, and was so pleased to get uh, about 16 teaching artists from all disciplines, poetry, visual arts, theater, dance, to contribute to the book. Uh, according to the prompts that I gave for myself with view, design, and respond, right. they also responded to those with stories of their own. So there's a really strong thread of practitioners from all disciplines yeah. and from all over the country that's built into the book. So it really, I believe it really truly is a book for both beginners and veterans mm -hmm. and anybody working in any of these, uh, any of the disciplines. And how did you find those folks? Um, I asked around. I just asked friends, hey, especially, you know, I know a lot of New York people. Mm -hmm. 
but there was already plenty of New York and plenty of music in the book. Right. So I wanted people from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started asking friends, do you know anybody? Um, I need more artists of color. I need a poet. Um, who's doing dance work that's really cool. Mm. There I met uh, Aisha Upchurch. Mm. She's a hip-hop uh, TA and just a powerhouse up in Boston. And I wanted her in the book so bad, and she's got some great spots yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But just just meeting cool people, mm-hmm. that was one of the joys of making the book, was like reaching out to these TAs saying, this is what I'm trying to do. I can't, I'm not getting paid. I can't pay you anything, I'm sorry. I'll give you a copy of the book, and I can like, trumpet you on social media but would you would you please contribute to my book i'm interested in your opinion here are the prompts that i have to capture your view and here are some situations that i'm hoping you can give me an anecdote from your experience that relates to the topics in the book and i got these wonderful responses um i'm i'm really grateful to those teaching artists for for what they gave to the book i think i think um as somebody who has read it has read it and had read it with different lenses. Um, those moments where we hear another person's voice, another artist's voice, it's it's validating to the reader, or from my perspective as a reader, to hear some of the ways that they're thinking about the work, um, from uh, what their views are, because there is a connection amongst them. Um, and it makes you think like, oh, is that how I see it? You know, it just makes you think about how do I clarify my view? Um, you know, how, you know, who, what my role is, what I think the student's role is, that kind of thing. Um, and, and I also enjoy getting to know you through those stories. Like in the very beginning, we're hearing that classroom teacher story and, uh, and, 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 uh, there's this like moment where I was like, oh, this is very vulnerable what you're sharing. And, and initially I wasn't sure if that was going to continue mm. and it doesn't necessarily continue in exactly the same way. I think it's through those stories, the fail stories and the examples that you give yeah. that then we're learning more about your thought process and what happened and how you responded and how it goes back to the, whatever the frame yeah. is. Yeah. And, um, well, I didn't want to write a book about me. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, in the earlier drafts of the book mm-hmm. that, biographical chapter mm-hmm. was in the back oh i didn't i just oh, i no, didn't I think like, it was that important no it's important the peer reviewers <laughs> said no no we have to know who you are yeah. if we're going to believe mm-hmm. what you're telling us yeah so i moved it to the front yeah and, uh, yeah yeah no i it was just, they were smart they were smart <laughs> no I, I was lucky to get great <laughs> peer reviewers so um yeah, I mean, and it's an it's a it's a it's a fast read. It's an easy read. There's it's it's pretty dense though. There's a lot in there. One of my favorite things because I'm visual is I love the figures and the different graphics. Thank you. I um, worked so hard on that. On the, <laughs> the, yeah. the 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 is that what they're called? Graphics. Yeah, the figures, the graphics. Figures, yeah. there, there's a there's a lot of there's photographs, mm-hmm. charts, worksheets. Charts. It's sort of broken up. I didn't. For one thing, I was, I'm aware, uh, my wife is a published author. She writes mostly art-making books, books about making visual art. Mm. And she's got some picture books now, too. She's getting more into literature. Um, cool. But I've learned that when a person picks up a book and cracks it open, the experience that they have just sort of paging through it can really affect if they buy the book or not. And I knew the sort of density that I wanted the pages to have. I didn't want the paragraphs to be too long. I didn't want the language. You know, part of the editing process was this, like, take out all the jargon. Jargon, as jargon-free as you can make Mm. it. Take out the word very. I mean, there's just like these wonderful things. And I'm I'm so anti-exclamation point. I doubt if there's a, friggin exclamation point in the uh, whole book i'm just i love exclamation you points do. And i can guarantee that there's <laughs> not enough of there not so <laughs> it, so the figures and oh my god the clearances oh forget about it mm. like I, you want to get, get like a work of art and there's there's paintings and oh, musical yeah. scores and different things in there mm. oh my god the clearance processes are just so arcane and awful mm. but there we go that's just the price you pay. You gotta pay the piper. <laughs> um, so, so I paid the piper. I got all those figures in there. Um, and thank you for saying that it was an easy read. I and thank you for saying that I'm a good storyteller. I I want to be. And as a theater professional, I recognize good storytelling. Mm-hmm. I know I'm not a playwright which is why I collaborate with playwrights. I don't have what playwrights have. I wish I did. Mm. I wish I had what Pina Bausch has, but I don't. 
you know, but <laughs> but then you collaborate with people that yeah. do. So I wanted the book to have that sense of flow. Mm-hmm. Do you have to read it end to end? No. Does it present an argument in a, I hope it presents an argument in like a cogent and vital way and that it moves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I have like five questions that I could ask right now. Um, but I guess... I guess my question is like we want we want the listeners to read it we want or you know if they're compelled to I'm gonna use this in my um, teaching ours course I'm I'm kind of excited that's to see nice thank how, you I love that um, how your book this book and the teaching ours sutras will talk to each other um, in in the in the context of a, a course <laughs> Does that makes sense how uh, do you get a copy of the teaching ours sutras. I think you can get it on Amazon. Cause I thought th- I thought it was not a you couldn't get a print copy. Can you get a Kindle thing or you can get a Kindle? Uh, I don't. I should ask Michael. <laughs> this is a he shout out like, to Michael Wiggins, yeah. the author he of the like, Teaching Artist Sutras. Yeah, and the the um, guest on two absolutely slamming podcasts you've done with him. Two, he two is different so, months. <laughs> two different months, and he is so inspirational. He's so articulate. Yeah, like it's so funny because you guys are very close. Yeah, and there's these moments when you're just sort of palling around, <laughs> and he's just like a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, you get him on topic, and here comes the laser beam. Mm-hmm. Right here comes Michael. Watch out! Get yeah, out of the way. Get out of the way. If you notice, I'm not talking much in there because I don't need to. <laughs> he's much. he's an inspiration. I actually had to cut like a tremendous amount from that from our conversation because it really was four hours of conversation. Four, and I don't even know if we took any breaks. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he's affecting so many. You know, yeah. He and you are in like these positions where you're affecting a lot. You're touching a lot of people's lives. Because you're Im- you're improving the quality of our practice for the people that you come into contact with, and then they they're out in the schools and the prisons and the homeless shelters, like making stuff happen. So you are really you touch a lot of lives. Thank you. My other question to you about the book is, it's it's you know it's sitting on my coffee table there. Look, it's like warped a little bit because i've been reading <laughs> i'm it. really flattered <laughs> um but how how now that you've you're in the midst of this sort of um promoting tour promotion tour how how, how one how or what has the response been so far and two um w- yeah what is your hope for and you already said what the hope is um, so scratch that you already said it what's what was my question <laughs> what's, the, what's the response been and what yes, are my hopes for what happens been? with the book yeah oh, well i guess i guess before you go into that like what's the response been to the book and to you and at a certain point you're gonna you know no longer be promoting it and so how what kind of life do you want it to have beyond you out there trying to put it out there well of course i want it to be useful mm-hmm. i i want people to get something out of it and use it and s- i also want them to see like where it's weak and like figure out a better way to do things because mm. i because it can't it's it's not going to be perfect but I, I hope people put it to use and and share it um would it break my heart if it became part of um, what undergraduates look at? Uh, you know, undergraduates who are in the arts doesn't matter your art form. Uh, let's we'll we'll take music as an example. Not every of uh, undergraduate violin major gets to play in a symphony orchestra. Mm. People aren't. Not every dancer is going to end up in a permanent company on salary with health care. Teaching artists' work is probably going to be part of what artists are doing. Just not that many people can just make art and make a living at it. And the work is also valuable for other reasons. Like if you are interested in social justice, if you're interested in having an effect on your society and your community and you're drawn to that, and you're, as you you and Michael Wiggins were talking about, if you're sort of the right temperament to be of service in that way, then this is really good work to be doing. And if there's a tool that can help you shape what you do, design better, practice better, I would be 
so thrilled if this book was a part of making that happen for undergraduates, for new teaching artists, for veterans who want to sort of take a look back or just even just sort of need a another lens or sort of a another way to look at their work. Because mm. um, it's sort of like, it's a little like talking shop with somebody. It's a very, it's a very talk shop book. Mm. Um, you know, from everything from there's, there's practical stuff like uh, compensation worksheets mm -hmm. to if you're analyzing work of art, what are you really looking for that's going to be useful in a classroom? Um, a lot of different models. So what do I want to happen to have happen with the book? Yeah, I want it to be used. Some really interesting thing has come up. Um, the state of South Carolina has invited me to come down. I'm going in about four weeks. And uh, thank, with, uh, thanks to the leadership of Larissa Gelman at the Peace Center, where she's director of community outreach, I'm going to run a statewide training for teaching artists in South Carolina. And when they get done with their two and a half days with me, based on the book, they will be certified as teaching artists oh. by the state of South Carolina. And it would not break my heart if other states decided that they wanted to use the book as a model because mm. for administrators and professional developers looking at how to develop teaching artists, I think all the tools are there. Mm. I mean, do I want to be hired? Yeah. Do, could they just get the book and do it themselves? If they're experienced, yeah, I think they could. Yeah. I think all the, the tools are there, and if you understand how they resonate in the real workaday world of a teaching artist, I think you could guide a group of teaching artists through that book yeah. and the tools that are there and come out with people who were doing better work sooner. So that's that's uh, there are a couple of things that came out of that. One, uh, I've, I've interviewed other authors like Sean Jinwright, Right. He, he's written um, Hope and Healing <clears throat> and he is often doing keynotes, workshops. Um, and so that 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 like in person companion to the book or the the, the work is actually very valuable. So I'm uh, kudos to South Carolina state of South Carolina. Um, the other thing that I'm curious about, though, is we've had conversations on this podcast. I. I think I tend to have it only on this podcast now, but there have been lots of conversations around certifications and what yeah. does that even like, what does that mean for a teaching artist to you? Well, yeah, it's an important question because I mean, because it's such an important role that we play in the community that you do want people who look if your if your pipes are busted you don't want to get somebody who's always wanted to be a plumber to come in and fix your pipes you want somebody that actually knows something about plumbing or about the electrical system you, somebody that both has some experience and some training and has something to bring to the table mm. and i don't think it's different with uh, working with arts and education the children and the other, you know, adult participants that we work with, we want to be of service. Okay, what are the standards that we have mm. to be of service? Is desire enough? Uh, is uh, a kind of an idea that I've always wanted to try? Is that enough? Now, and I think what happens sometimes, I know what happens sometimes, if there's an underserved community and the only way to get them a service is to get somebody who has no training but lots of heart. Right then that's what that community gets. Mm. Is that bad? Well, if without that, there would be no service there, so that sounds better than nothing. Mm -hmm. But for, but God, I hope we're gonna do better than better than nothing. Um, I mean, to me, that, that sort of, not to put you down in any way, but that goes back to your story, right? Of, of, of being hired at Lower East Side Prep. Lower East Side right? Prep, yeah. Like you had heart, but you didn't necessarily have the, the training or I didn't have the chops the chaps um you know and i think where i struggle i under i do understand it i totally understand getting certified in that standard the first certification is that you're an artist do you did you spend time in your life exactly. making are art? you trained are, are you uh, trained or are you are accomplished you exactly and um th for that reason i'm uh i try to encourage younger people to spend some time living as an artist mm. before they before they become a teaching yeah, artist. Agreed. Go out there in the world and make art. Mm -hmm. Like know what it's about so that when it's time for you to 
bring it to your community, yeah. you've got more to bring. So much more to bring. Just to say, like, that was why I didn't go right to grad school. Because I wanted to try, I wanted to make sure that I felt really strong as an artist. Yeah. And if I wanted to go into education, I needed to learn or get some experience in terms of teaching in some way, whatever that looked like. That's the first certification any teaching artist mm-hmm. has, is their certification in artist. Mm-hmm. And there are advantages to that and limits mm-hmm. you know it doesn't that's not the statement of the quality of your work necessarily but it is a there is a certain what's the word not imprimatur but like there's a certain um if you've managed to run that gauntlet mm. that says something about you know you did you did study certain things you've got a certain kinds of chops um then, okay, so then what are these other, what would be the legitimate chops that you would want for a quote-unquote teaching artist certification? Mm-hmm. Now, Courtney, I haven't done this yet. I don't know if I believe in it, mm. but I believe in what I put in the book. Right. And if the certification is based on that, it doesn't tell anybody what to care about. It doesn't tell anybody what to value. That You know, your view, what you care That's about true. and value is yours, mm-hmm. and it should match with the institution that you work with. Um, in fact, part of the application process to get into the workshop is to talk about what you value, uh, how you've been an artist in your life. So that artist component is there and to, and to give an example of your work, what your interest in education is. So when you're looking at an applicant, you're looking for somebody that is accomplished as a professional, right? And you want to match philosophically with them in terms of goals and worldview in terms of arts and education and society so that there's you're all kind of at least going in the same direction mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then um you want to know that they have an interest in education just you know yeah. have they done this ever or is it doesn't mean that the person who's brand new to it couldn't really be right for it right, right but right. in general we did try you know you and i both we were involved with childcare. Yeah. We were involved with elders at our church or mm-hmm. seniors at our church or mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. where we were in this sort of in a community of learners situation yeah. at some time in our life and some light went on. Mm-hmm. Oh, I kind of I get this. I like this. I'm comfortable here. I want to do some work here. And for most teaching artists, that's going to be part okay, of the formula. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm hoping that. Uh, yeah, there's. And, and a two-day certification? Come on, that's not a certification. Yeah. I know that. <laughs> I think they know that in South so Carolina, it's more, too. it's more about, it sounds like, at least it's for more this like particular... orientation. Like, or, yeah, and it sounds like really, it's like I went through this process and I have some, some foundations. I have right? some foundation. I'm oriented yeah. to this work. And mm-hmm. I think in this case, I'm hoping that because of the contents of the book, I hope that's an orientation that is foundational. Mm-hmm. And that you can really build, build on, that on it yeah. because it's all road tested. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in that book that I didn't just see over and over again. Is this true? Is this true? Let me try it over here. Is it true yeah. over here? Yes. Is it true over here? No. Maybe I better take that out of the book. So everything that's there, I, I think I can make a legitimate claim. This works. This is real. This works on the ground in the real world. Um, so if you want to put it to use, experiment with it. And the guidance isn't do this. It's more like think about these frames of reference and how you want to work with those techniques. Mm. And then look at the results that you get based on your uh, your informed designs. Are they working? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know how do you have to redesign so that they work better? So it does sound like in terms of how how to ride the wave of the book, so to speak, yeah. is that you're getting into this consultation and leadership space. I'd be happy with that because, you know, I don't, I'm not a person like Sean Jenright. He's such a beautiful, I wonderful mean, speaker oh. and so inspirational. Yeah. And the work that he does is so vital. And it's a message that we need to hear again and hear mm-hmm. again and hear mm-hmm. again and mm-hmm. keep clarifying, you know, just uh, for a number of reasons, including just reassurance that, Somebody is that articulate about what we all need to be thinking about and what we care about. Yeah, it's like hearing somebody speak with your inner voice. Like I wish, yeah, that's what I felt, but I couldn't say. Yes, that's and exactly how I felt when I when I saw him in the keynote. I was like, "You are saying things that I have felt, but didn't have the words for." Yes, um, so valuable. But I bet you, you will be that for somebody in South Carolina. You will be to, 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 to just own it. 
I want to be it. well. <laughs> I would like. I, yeah. I own it in the way that my natural, uh, like we talked about view design respond right mm -hmm. and in the book i invite all the readers to define their own view mm -hmm. but i don't think it would be fair for me to be spouting off for uh, 110,000 words unless i also tell you my view which is uh, a community of learners making and doing in an atelier setting mm -hmm. that's my view and mm -hmm. everything i do is based on that view right. so the community of learners part Making and doing means that I don't want to stand up and lecture. I don't want to be at a podium. I'm really uncomfortable mm -hmm. with it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't believe in it. I don't think I do it well. I have to force myself to get better at it. I'm like, I'm like the podium guy in training. It does not come naturally to me. Mm -hmm. It's not part of my view. It's the opposite of my view. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but the, I think that's exciting. I think there's, there's so many specific formats that we we see over and over and over again in professional development models in um you know keynote models and conferences that kind of thing and so your view as you and you will be you will be asked to do things and you get to say this is what i think it should look like based on your view and they will say okay and figure it out because like what you were talking about with the webinar that you're doing with ATA, it's yeah. a webinar. It's hard not to be in a more lecture space in yeah. that kind of format or platform. And, but you're going to, you're going to still apply your view and find a way for it to be atelier. <laughs> yeah. You know, right? and, and that webinar format, I'm mm -hmm. massaging it pretty hard right now mm -hmm. to try to make it more interactive, mm -hmm. you know, making sure that people are prepped with some mm -hmm. prompts beforehand and that they have some of the materials in their hands right. so that we are having a conversation so that we are making and doing as a community exactly. of learners because boy if, if we're not if it's not a conversation then uh, but that's what a I, lot I, is lost. I, I, I want you to uh feel good about owning that and not apologizing so if you if being at a podium is not the thing and you get asked for a keynote you tell them this is what it's going to look like if you want me, this is the way it's going to work. This is what the keynote is going to look like? This is what the keynote is going to look like because being at a podium is not for me. Let's talk about that. Okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I love because that. Because it's Thank exciting you. and it's different and it's and it's it's important for, for you to maintain all the things that you've placed in this book yeah. in your practice, yeah. even in this new sort of space that you're you're entering. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That's That's a great suggestion and I... I'm going to do that. Good. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, where do you, where, where do we go next? We talked about your book. We talked about you as a, as a musician. Let's talk about you as a parent. More, more oh. to the point, more to the point. I'll, yeah. I'll direct it. Okay. <laughs> but just, you know, I know you have a family, you have a loving family. So I'm just curious how, how have you, um, what are some ways that arts engagement has ha has been um, happening within your family structure? Well, uh, first of all, just in, about, about parenting in general. Mm -hmm. If if you have a chance to do it, if you have an opportunity, I would just really highly suggest it because it will kick your ass in ways that nothing else ever will. <laughs> um, and it's really been a call to. I think parents feel a call to be their best selves, not unlike the way that when we're in front of a classroom, I don't know, for me, being with students always asks me to bring my best. Mm -hmm. And strangely enough, um, after I was able to observe myself teaching, I found that I was at my best when I was in front of a classroom because for some reason... I don't know why most, I mean, when you, when I'm with a group of students, I just want to make it, I want something good to happen. Mm -hmm. I want to make it work. And that means ego just like, it sort of it's isn't gone. there. Yeah. And that's a very beautiful place to be. Mm. There are, um, I'm a practicing Buddhist and there are things that we work on in terms of uh, service and uh, self-reflection and letting go of ego that I only understood they were possible because I saw them retrospectively in what was happening to me in the classroom. Mm. Well, I saw them two places. When I write music, 
sort of everything disappears. There's just sort of the music. Wow. There's not ego there. There's just this thing that's happening. It's uh, very global. And also with students, I found that my desires, I mean, outside of a desire to serve, were unimportant. And there was this opportunity to make something positive happen. So um, being a parent, I think, calls, you become aware that you you want to be your best self. Mm. Um, are you familiar with the Michael Apted movies, the 7-Up series? Uh, yes, I, I know of it, but please explain. Well, as many of them as you can watch, mm -hmm. there was a British filmmaker that starting in the mid-60s took a cohort of about, I think, 18 or 20 uh, seven-year-olds. There was some quote by Colonel So-and-So, some British guy that was, show me the... Show me the boy at seven and I'll show you the man or something like that. Mm. That's the quote. And Michael Apted wanted to test this out. So he got a group of people to agree to be filmed at age seven, age 14, age 21, 28, 35, 42. I think we're now on 56 up. Wow. So he keeps returning to them every seven years. And the, and the, uh, the idea is this child that you meet at age seven how much do they really change as they grow up? Mm. It is chilling. I, uh... You're kind of, you're kind of, it looks like you're kind of cooked by age seven. Wow. They don't change a lot. The ad, their attitude toward the world, their worldviews, their vibe, their energy, their modes of expression, they don't change a lot. Mm. And when I was a maybe soon to be parent, person you know pre-parental i was like damn gotta get this first part really right <laughs> because you don't get to start again yeah. and i was very aware of that in my in my my son is 18 now and i was so very aware of it for those first few years i wanted to be the best oh the other thing is you know children don't learn from what you tell them no. they learn from how you are yeah. Yeah, yeah and i wanted to be my r i wanted it to be the best it could be you know, so it helped me renew my spiritual practice and just try to get my act together mm -hmm. because I knew I was being an influence, a profound influence on this human being. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be a negative. Okay, we can't help it. We are going to be a negative influence. But to the extent that I could control it, mm -hmm. I wanted it to be positive mm -hmm. and loving, nurturing, mm -hmm. building. Mm -hmm. Any parent wants, and that's the other thing, every parent wants that. Every parent in every war-torn, water-starved place on the earth wants that for their child, but they're under all these stresses. It must drive people crazy mm. that you want to be there for your child in that way. I mean, you're biologically predisposed to be all these things for your child and to provide this for mm. them. And then you're in this situation that's absolutely untenable. It's got to tear people apart. Yeah. And I so I feel much more connected with every single parent in the world mm. by virtue of being a parent. Yeah. Yeah. Arts in your family. Well, we're just, it's just a very artsy household. Yeah. There's instruments all over the place. Mm. There's the apartment is filled with my wife's visual art. Mm. Um, there are now three functioning studios in a, uh, uh, in a thousand square foot apartment. Uh -huh. You know, my wife's, <laughs> my wife's uh, printmaking and bookmaking studio, mm. my uh, office recording studio, and my son has a recording studio in his bedroom, basically, yeah. which all that takes is a microphone and a computer, but still. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm very aware. <laughs> so it's a, you know, it was an artsy school. We don't have to worry about him. You know, I wasn't so worried about his arts programming it in his schools mm. because he was just faced it all the time at home yeah. and here's the thing uh, he also has grew up with uh, two parents who love what they do mm. and we love who we work with mm. i think it's so important that the colleagues that we are with on a day-to-day -day basis we gotta like them life's too short not yeah. to we gotta love them and now he's uh so my son is that's what he expects out of life he expects to love his work mm -hmm. and to love the people that he works with. Imagine that. And that makes that's very positive, but it's also a harder road to hoe in some ways, I guess. I, I wouldn't ways. I wouldn't wish anything else for him. Yeah. Yeah, um, I remember like just when I was going back to just to go back to my my resume and how um I kept, you know, just sort of jumping from job to job and my dad was like you 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 can't 
do that. No, you're terrifying him. <laughs> oh God, I was. Um, but he also somehow knew I'd be okay too, you know. And but but he would always have advice. And I had said to him, he's like, um, why are you leaving this job and going to that job? And I was like, well, that job's not really making me happy anymore. And he's like, what? That doesn't have, like, what does happiness have to do? You need to have insurance. You need a job. You need a salary. And I was like, listen, you have been very lucky. You found your bliss in your job and where you work. You love what you do. You love who you get to work with. You love where you're doing it. You were lucky that you got to do to find that pretty early on in your career. I haven't found it yet. So I'm uh, I'm going to keep searching. <laughs> but it is can be terrifying for the parents. Oh, I'm sure. What? I did lots of things that terrified them. <laughs> One of the very funny side effects of a child who grows up in a high school with artist educators mm. is there were a lot of dinnertime conversations about uh correctional facilities, mm. social justice and teaching techniques. And what was happening in classrooms or not happening. So by the time he was in, say, second or third grade, uh, my son was a pretty um, determined critic of his teacher's technique, of their classroom teaching technique, and if they were engaging students. And he was rather informed about it, too. So if teachers, any teachers that weren't really bringing it, and bringing their humanity to the work, mm. he would write them off. Wow. They aren't, they aren't good. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. I want the whole person. You know, I want, I know, I want chops. I want teaching chops. And he kind of knows what, they're, what it should look like. Yeah. And he's like, he's like wreaking havoc at his high school. And the principal sits him down and says, well, what's your problem with this system? And he starts naming off the problems. And the principal says, okay, it's time for you to start reading Foucault. And he hands him Foucault. That's like throwing gasoline on a fire. Wow. Right. And, but that's what, you know, that was the right thing to do. (laughs) So it's a, it's funny. He's a, he's a a pretty incisive critic. Mm. And now he's, he, and he cares about, he cares about social justice issues in a way that I, ways that I wasn't even aware of yeah. when I was 17, 18 years old. Right. I had no idea what was going on in the world. Right. That takes you back to the, the other the story. Man in the, alley, right? the man in the alley. Wow. This was fun. I do, this is fun. I do have one last question. I, I wasn't sure if I should ask it, but you brought it up. So if, if you'll indulge me. Yeah, well, let's let's go for I'm it. Let's curious, indulge. I'm, I'm curious about your Buddhist practice. Mm. I don't really know much about it uh, as a religion. How did you come to it, and and um, how does it manifest in your in your life? Uh, I, I let me talk about how it started, and I I don't want to talk about too many details sure. because actually, it's part of the practice is that um, you, you you don't really hold forth about it. Mm. But it's been a really important thread for me. Um, I think it started in when I was growing up. My father had uh, books around on Taoism and some different things that were kind of hip. He was there was a little bit of a hippie thread in my parents' poetry and hippie books, and so there was some of that Eastern philosophy kind of around the house. Mm. So I wasn't close. I was that was a little opening, but. Um, once I was uh, at after my parents were divorced, my I was at my dad's girlfriend's house, went in the bathroom, and on the back of the toilet there was a book by Alan Watts called The Book. The book. It's called The Book, oh. and it's sort of a he's sort of a um, he was from the sort of intellectual philosophical branch of Catholicism that like kind of goes out on a limb with stuff, and then he had studied Zen mm-hmm. and. I just was, okay, what is this? And I picked it up and just started leafing through it. And the things that he was saying, I thought, oh, well, here's an, I'm whatever, I'm 18. I'm like, here's an adult who actually makes sense when they talk. Haven't encountered many of those. Mm. And this really impresses me. So I started reading some Alan Watts and that led to uh, one of the, one of the, people a tibetan buddhist who brought was instrumental in bringing buddhism to the west is a man named choyong trumpa rinpoche and he founded the shambhala movement he was uh, he fled tibet when the chinese after the chinese had invaded he fled across the mountains went to india eventually wound up in oxford england was educated at oxford 
then came to the United States to sort of translate Buddhist practices, Tibetan Buddhist practices of a specific lineage, um, which is a practice and study lineage, very grounded in, in texts and the type of practices that you do in your daily life to cultivate uh, awareness. Mm. Um, he founded the Shambhala movement. He started teaching in the United States. Naropa University was one of the things he founded. He was just an absolute... Uh, explosion of enlightened activity in the West, mm. establishing Dharma centers and schools all across the United States, mm. as well as the Shambhala movement, which is still um, uh, functioning, although they've had some leadership issues. Uh, but this is, uh, Shambhala is sort of like a translated Buddhism, but it sort of leads you, it's a bit of a gateway drug, because once you start on the sort of more translated practices, you get closer to the Tibetan and the original words of the Buddha uh, and their um, very specific uh, meditation techniques and study techniques mm. and ways of applying uh, meditation to your everyday life mm. um, so that what you're learning on the cushion becomes the way that you live when you're off the cushion. Cool. And so I started practicing. I read that book. I At a certain point, I... Um, started meditating, started reading these books that were way over my head. I had no idea what was going on, mm -hmm. but I thought they were really cool. Um, those, those were Choyong Trumpa's books. And after a time, I felt I needed more guidance mm -hmm. than a book. I needed a teacher. Okay. And that's a tradition within Buddhism is that you look for a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I started looking for a teacher. And after about four or five years, I, I didn't feel what they call the heart connection with any of the wonderful teachers and lamas that I was listening to mm. they were so inspiring but I also felt that they were kind of like on the other side of a bay mm. shouting to me and I couldn't quite make out what they were saying mm. and at a certain point there's a there's a uh, magazine called the Shambhala Sun and Shambhala was the organization that Chogyong Trungpa founded mm. uh, and in this magazine there was an interview there's a very famous Buddhist nun from the lineage that I'm in now called Pema Chodron. I don't know if you've heard of her name. Mm -mm. She has written books like Start Where You Are and The Places We Fear. And uh, she's a Western woman who became a nun and is now a leading teacher in Western Buddhism. And uh, she interviewed her teacher, which was a man named uh, the Venerable uh, Zigar Kontrol Rinpoche. And he has an organization called MSB, Mangala Sri Bhuti, which is named for his Tibetan teacher. He has a couple of Dharma centers. She's his uh, student. And there was an interview in the magazine. Uh, just him talking, them having a conversation, not unlike our interview here. And as they were, I read this interview and it was as though I, the things he was saying about the way our minds work was almost as though he had been spying on me like my whole life. And he started talking about how my mind worked. And I thought, this is really weird but I understand everything he's saying mm. and I see the truth in it and it's very resonant. It is really speaking to me. Um, it was almost spooky, this feeling of connectedness and wonderful. And he's really articulate too, mm. like wicked smart. Mm. But he's got all this monastic training and his use of the English language is just beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So I started to go to attend teachings that he would give in New York or in Vermont. Mm -hmm. And eventually I, I took refuge, which was basically like saying, I'm, I'm going to follow a Buddhist path and I'm not going to look to other resources to provide me guidance and nourishment. Mm -hmm. I become a refugee. I'm no longer uh, taking refuge in the eight worldly concerns or in, in other forms of guidance this is the path i'm going to do that's when you take refuge and then there are further vows as you study and, and grow you take further vows you attend workshops you go to teachings and that's the path that i've been on now for about 25 years it's had a profound influence on my teaching um you know and basically it could be summed up by what we talked about before like wanting to be your very best self mm -hmm. when you and to be there in service of others uh, and Buddhism helps that happen, like, very naturally. Mm. And, uh, and there's a lot of support uh, for that happening. Like, there's different kinds of Buddhism. In Zen Buddhism, there's almost zero support. 
like it's just like you get left alone with your mind mm. and that's kind of it in the tibetan buddhist practices there's there's what's called the ocean of dharma there is so much support and it speaks to you at various places on the path mm. um let me wind this back around to the teaching artist work yeah one of the things that tibetan teachers do that's absolutely amazing and that i have aspired to is when they teach and it's completely lecture it's I mean, there might be a Q&A at the end, but it's really lecture-driven. And I, I, in some ways, I think this is a weakness because I think some teachers, actually, especially young teachers, might be better in a Q&A format. Mm. But, okay, but, but uh, Z.R. Contro is a fantastic teacher. I, there's, it's incomparable what he's able to do. But the, the beautiful thing about the Tibetan tradition is that they start out with, you know, a very simple premise— like when His Holiness the Dalai Lama teaches at um, at Radio City Music Hall, mm. he starts with the basic premises of Buddhism. Like everyone wants to be happy, nobody wants to suffer, and then we go on from there. Like one little step at a time. Mm. But these steps can go on. These little steps that take maybe a minute to say, go on for three days or for a week or ten days. Wow. And this the teaching is like it's so linear and you're like at every point you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense too. And the next step. And I wanted the book to be able to do that. I want you to be able to read it and go, hey, that makes sense. Oh, that makes sense too. Or yes, I see that as true too. Mm. I'm not that level of teacher, but I, I wanted it to happen. And that kind of clarity too yeah. you know, to bring that to the reader so that you know in the arts we have the two kinds of ambiguity like rich ambiguity that draws you in and ambiguity where you sit there and you like don't know what the hell's going on yeah <laughs> so i was trying to avoid ambiguity i don't want that confusing ambiguity mm -hmm. a little richness doesn't hurt especially when in our practice so many of these things can be likened you know the idea of an indra's net a what in indra's, in net. indra's net no indra's net is the idea that there's a A sort of a, a spatial relationship of crystals that are where every crystal in every direction reflects the facets of every other crystal in each of its facets yeah so everything is reflecting everything else in this net of crystals and that's an Indra's net mm. and teaching artist practice is a little bit like that mm. we can try to talk about one thing but it's a, to isolate the elements of our work like that, it's a bit of a construct. You kind of have to go with it to isolate it like that because it does not exist in isolation right. from these other aspects. So to do the book, you sort of, to do something like the book, you sort of have to enforce some boundaries that are, uh, they're a little fuzzy, yeah. right? But yeah. it's sort of momentary. It's sort of provisional. Right. So in order to talk about this, we're going to try to separate it from these other things. Yeah. But in the end, they're all working there's a real so sense of connection yeah, yeah. that we all experience. Mm. So that's my, that's part of the relationship between the Buddhism and my teaching artist practice mm. and, and the book. That's lovely. Thank you for asking. Thank you for sharing. I really appreciate it. And I, I'm glad I asked it because I really, I wasn't sure. <laughs> um, well, Daniel, this has been a joy. Truly. Thank you. Oh, me really, too. Really, really lovely. Me too. Yeah. Um, and good luck with all the things around the book and all the things that come from the experience of having written the book. Um, and I'm sure, I'm very sure our paths will cross multiple times. Let's make sure they do. <laughs> They Thanks will. for having me on the show. I really, I've had fun doing it. You're a good interviewer. <laughs> you are. Thank you. <laughs> okay. okay, bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode 34, act two of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Daniel Levy, Reflection, Connection, and Resonance. Join us next time for a conversation from We Can't Go Back. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. Jonna Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the brand new pod shop at the top of the page for merch. 
Twitter us at TA underscore artistry, the gram at teaching artistry with CJB, and now on YouTube. Check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch the latest video series, We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life.